Matthew 13, 53. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue. So they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all of his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. And he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. Well, what can we expect to happen when God's king calls the world to follow him? In preparing for this talk, I came across an old saying, a Jewish proverb. If God lived on earth, people would break his windows. Well, perhaps you noticed the shattered pane of glass in the Aviva building behind us over recent weeks. That damage may well have just been an accident. But to put a brick through the window of someone's home, well, that's an act of real hostility. And hostility is what we encounter when we look at Matthew 14 this morning. And it's about hostility towards the call of God's king and his kingdom. If God lived on earth, people would break his windows. Or perhaps more accurately, when this world meets God, God's king, well, our instinct is to want to kill him. We're beginning a new series in one of the major sections in Matthew's gospel, And there are five big sections in Matthew's gospel between the account of Jesus' birth and then the account of his his crucifixion and resurrection. 
And Matthew breaks up these sayings with a phrase, a marker in his writing, when Jesus had finished. And we see it there um, in verse 53 of chapter 13. When Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And so our section begins. And as we get our bearings in this section, well, we see it starts with confusion about Jesus, about who he is, and about who his family is. Verse 54, coming to his hometown, he taught them in the synagogue. So they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Confusion about his identity. And then verse 55 Well, confusion about his family. Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? And we'll see as we go on through the section, these themes of Jesus' identity and family, where they run through. And it concludes with chapter 18, which is a big block of teaching, as Jesus teaches about life in God's family. And on the way, well, perhaps there are a couple of key verses that underline the, uh, what's going on in these section, in these chapters. And we see it in chapter 16. It's worth just flicking there to page 991 for a moment. And I'll read from chapter 16, verse 15. Jesus said to them, but who do you say I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. The issue of Jesus' identity. You're the Christ, the son of the living God. And then verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The issue of Jesus' family. Here is Peter, and then the disciples of Jesus, the church, the people God is gathering for himself, as he promised to Abraham right back in Genesis 12, a great family from among the nations who he would bless. And so this is a section where we see, well, we're looking at Jesus and we're seeing Jesus, the son of God, and his family. And it's a section where we're seeing Jesus, the son of God, gathering his church. And it's a section where we see Jesus gathering his church in a hostile world. And so that's where Matthew begins, back in chapter 14. And he wants us to examine this hostility. If you like chapter 13 and 14, they're a bit like a a warts and all documentary on unbelief. Perhaps you've watched Drive to Survive or one of the all or nothings of uh, various football clubs. Or maybe it's Panorama, the Panorama investigative expose on unbelief. Here it is, and it's shocking, and it's hostile, and it's ugly. And Matthew puts it here, I think, to strengthen our faith, strengthen our faith in Jesus who's gathering the church, Because he shows us what to expect as God's king calls the world to follow him. So we're not unsettled by it. And he takes us, if you like, eye to eye with belief. We stare it out with unbelief. We stare it out and we see what it's really like. So that we aren't seduced by it. But instead we wander at Jesus, our saviour, even more. So let's tune in to Matthew's documentary. Perhaps over a cup of tea or coffee afterwards, you could try and come up with a good title that captures um, what Matthew's saying here. Here's my effort. I would call it Unbelief Exposed, Unbelief Understood. And those are going to be our two points this morning, a slight tweak to the handout since going to, pr- to print. First, Unbelief Exposed, and then second, Unbelief Understood. Unbelief Exposed. 
Well, there are three big things that Matthew shows us as he takes us face to face with unbelief. He shows us it's unreasonable, it's rooted in unrepentance, and it's ugly. Unbelief is unreasonable. We begin in Jesus' hometown. Verse 53, when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in the synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Matthew doesn't give us loads of detail here about what Jesus taught, but by this time in the gospel, we've encountered much of his teaching already. We've, we've heard the Sermon on the Mount. We've heard other parables explained. A former U.S. president said of the Sermon on the Mount, I do not believe there's a problem in this country or the world today which would not be settled if approached through the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount. The hearers of the Sermon on the Mount, who were right there, well, Matthew records them as having been astonished at his teaching, for Jesus was teaching as one who had authority. So these people in Nazareth, they've heard authoritative teaching, astonishing teaching, And to back it up, well, they've heard of undeniable mighty works. And so surely we're expecting the hometown hero's welcome. If you remember the Olympics in 2012, all the gold medalists had the post boxes in their hometowns painted gold. Well, the very least they could be doing in Nazareth is painting the post boxes gold. Great honor is due. But instead, verse 57, they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And we're thinking, well, this doesn't really make sense. His teaching is astonishing and they've heard it. And his works are undeniable. And they're not denying that they happen. Their question's not, did he do these things? Their question is, where did he get this wisdom and these mighty works? But then their response, well, it's to take offense. The word is to be scandalized. And it just seems a bit illogical, a bit unreasonable. Perhaps you saw in recent years the um, story of the fake heiress, Anna Sorokin, who created false documents documents and finances and a whole persona to extort money. And when she was found out, that was a scandal. Or think of the rogue trader who takes money but doesn't deliver. Or the MP claiming bogus expenses. And we take offense at offensive behavior. We're scandalized by scandals. But Jesus teaches words that are so true and have such authority that the crowds are astonished. And Jesus has healed the sick and cast out a demon with a word. He's given life to a leper. He's made a paralyzed man walk. Two demon-possessed men set free. A woman who bled for 12 years healed. A young girl raised from the dead. Why are they scandalized by him? Well, at the very heart of Jesus' ministry, Matthew gives a summary of his message, if you like. Chapter 4, verse 17, we read, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. To repent is to turn round 180 degrees. Repentance is what happens when you take the wrong turning on a journey, and you admit it, and then you turn around and go back the other way. When it comes to Jesus, well, repentance is to turn from living life with ourselves as king, I live for me, to living life with Jesus as king. I surrender to him. And so when Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he's calling us to take the crown off our own heads and yield to him as king. 
to hand over the keys of our life to him, to let him rule us, to come under his leadership, to be his subjects. And by nature, we don't want to do it. We say no. And it's illogical. The evidence is clear. He's God's king. His teaching is astonishing. His works are undeniable. But we just don't want to submit to him. Sometimes out on the pavement just behind here, um, a number from the church uh, go out to speak to people at lunch times and just asking the question of those on their lunch break walking around, what's your opinion about Jesus? And there are all kinds of responses and the hope is to get into helpful conversations with people. And sometimes we meet another follower of Jesus and that's a great joy. But often there's a quick answer. A prophet, a good man, a good teacher, a charlatan. He doesn't exist. The follow-up question, well, how did you come to that position? Well, sometimes honesty. Well, I've never really thought about it. And sometimes, well, let's just shut the conversation down. I don't want to think about it. And Matthew wants us to see that that's what we're like by nature. And he calls it unbelief. Verse 58, Jesus did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. And it's unreasonable. And it's rooted in unrepentance. And so Matthew, if you like, wants us to really see this. And so he shows us Herod. Verse 14, at that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. The Herod Matthew's writing about here is Herod Antipas. He's the son of Herod the Great. And Herod the Great, well, we met him in Matthew 2. And he is the one who ordered the execution of all the boys in Bethlehem under two years old. Herod Antipas is not really a king. He's a tetrarch. So he's a kind of smaller regional ruler in the Galilee area. And he's heard reports about Jesus on his patch. And we see in Herod someone determined to refuse the truth. And it starts with his assessment of Jesus. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. And it is a really strange response to Jesus. The miraculous powers, well, that word's exactly the same word as mighty deeds that we saw in chapter 13. So Herod knows what Jesus has been doing, but he's adamant that this is actually John the Baptist, who's now been resurrected and before didn't have miraculous powers, but now, as a resurrected person, has new powers. But it seems a bit strange, doesn't it? We read from Matthew chapter 3 earlier, and it reminded us who John the Baptist was the last great Old Testament era prophet, the one who announced the coming of the kingdom of heaven in the person of Jesus, and the one who called for repentance, ready to receive God's king. And so Herod has at least made the connection. John and Jesus are saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But then he attributes Jesus' miracles to John. Why is he saying this? Well, verses 3 to 12 give the backstory. And I wonder if what we see here in Herod Well, if you like, we could call it the hopeful thinking of a guilty conscience. He's refusing to actually deal with his guilt. He's remaining unrepentant. But I wonder if verse 2 is a bit like Herod applying the salve to his conscience. Maybe John is alive again. Phew. Maybe I'm off the hook. But he's unrepentant. 
And that has been his problem the whole time. Verse 3. For Herod has seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had been saying to him, it's not lawful for you to have her. Herodias was the wife of Philip, the brother of Herod. Herod seduced her. He divorced his own wife. And then he married the wife of another man. And John called him out. John spoke the truth of God's law and called Herod to repent in readiness for the coming king. And John taught that true repentance does result in action. Matthew chapter 3 verse 8, John said, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Because repentance is not just an assent to Jesus being king in theory. It's to actually live with him as king in practice. And so John says, well, repentance will show in a visible change of life as a life is brought under the good rule of Jesus. But Herod doesn't want to hear it. Verse 3, Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias. He went to great lengths to keep John quiet. And he wanted to go further, verse 5, and though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. And so here is Herod wanting to silence God's truth at all costs. And Matthew wants us to see that as Jesus the king comes to call people to his kingdom, as he gathers his church, as he assembles his family, well, there will be hostility. And it's not about reason. It's about refusal to repent. By nature, we want to be king ourselves. If you like, we say, I won't surrender because I want what I want. Herod wants Herodias, so he wants to silence God's truth so he can pursue what he wants. And Matthew wants us to see that not only is this unreasonable, but it's really ugly. And it is a sobering story, isn't it? And at this point, I wonder in the documentary whether something would flash up across the screen at this point. Some viewers may find the following scenes disturbing. Verse 6. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. The scene is Herod's birthday feast, and the guests are present, probably the local dignitaries and nobility, and Herod's unrepentant desires are on display. Historians suggest that Herodias' daughter was probably between the ages of 12 and 14 at this point, and she's sent on her own to dance in front of Herod and his gathering. And the context suggests this would not have been an innocent ballet. This is more the world of exploitation. And it shows us a picture of the downward path that Herod's unrepentant desires continue to take him. It's a warning of the slippery slope of unrepentance. In his common grace, God, it seems, kindly restrains us often from the extent of the wickedness we're capable of. But where unrepentance, well, is left unchecked, well, there is great depravity, atrocities, abuses, and they all begin on that slippery slope of unrepentant sin. Herod wanted Herodias, and he wanted a dancing girl, and he wanted, and he took, and he refused to listen to the truth and added to adultery was abuse and seen to be added to abuse would be murder. 
But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, well, in the word order in the original, give me on a platter here the head of John the Baptist. You can imagine how those words landed in the room. A stunned silence, a jeer of the tragedy chant on the terrace, or maybe a mixture, roars from the guests, and a very subdued Herod. Verse 9, the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. Herod was sorry, literally grieved. And here we see the striking interplay between his unrepentance and his fear. Did you notice in verse 5, he fears the people? He wanted to have John put to death, but he feared the people because they held John to be a prophet. But to avoid political uproar, to keep his position, well, he kept John alive. Prison would have to do. But now in verse 9, he fears his guests. But because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. Herod's decision to murder John had nothing to do with honorable oath-keeping. He was quite happy to break his marriage covenant. His action had everything to do with fear of people, what they would think of him, what it would cost him to do the right thing. And did you notice at this point, Matthew calls Herod the king? He's not a king, he's a tetrarch. But at this point, Matthew says, the king was sorry. And I wonder if we're just supposed to see the irony here. He doesn't look much like a king. What do we make of Herod, the king, as we survey the mess that surrounds this unrepentant little sovereign? He won't acknowledge God's king. And in his determination to live life apart from Jesus, well, it leaves him in a cauldron of competing fears, swayed and swept around by the pressures that come at him. As fear and unrepentance collide, it becomes a moral mess, and the direction is down. Verse 10, he sent and had John beheaded in prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And that's the final scene of the party. Herodias holding a platter with John's head on it. And like Herod, she would do anything she can to silence the messenger who brings the truth. And so Matthew gives us this picture, and it's the world by nature, hostile to the truth, unreasonable, unrepentant, ugly. And it's a very sobering picture, isn't it? But as we go on through this section, Matthew is going to keep presenting us the world, and then he'll present us Jesus. And so we see the world in Herod this week, and it seems pretty hopeless, But then we will see Jesus and great hope. God's king bringing salvation to a world like this, gathering his church. And then we'll see the world in religious hypocrisy, in the Pharisees and the scribes. And then we'll see Jesus and his compassion, his impartiality, gathering his family from among the nations. And then we'll see the world again, stubborn and hostile. And then Jesus teaching and shaping the family of God, according to the pattern of the cross, a family of love and forgiveness and reconciliation. The gates of hell will not prevail. And so as the credits roll on the documentary, well, Matthew wants us to reflect on what we've seen. And as we do this, well, this account will draw us to Jesus and it will strengthen our faith with him if we will listen to it. And so that's our second point. 
unbelief understood. See, what happens when God's king calls the world to repent? Well, there will be hostility. I'm not a Latin scholar, so you'll have to forgive my pronunciation here, but I came across the phrase during the week, veritas odium parit. Truth produces hatred. The writer J.C. Ryle says of these verses, truly there was an event here, if ever there was one in the world, which might make an ignorant man say, what profit is it to serve God? As he considers the death of John the Baptist. But Matthew writes this so that we're not ignorant. He wants us to be informed. Because if we speak of Jesus in our school or in the workplace, and we're told to keep our views to ourselves, well, nothing's gone wrong. Because that's what the world is like. Or perhaps we speak with a friend or family member as we explain Jesus' call to repentance and what it might look like, and they take offense. And being soft-hearted, we wonder, well, did I say it badly? Could I have said it better? And of course, we want to be winsome. But we're not to be surprised by unreasonable rejection. As Jesus gathers his church, we can expect those kind of responses. It's the world that he's gathering the church from. And so Matthew says, don't be wobbled in your faith by a hostile world, because today the risen Jesus is gathering his church. And there will be hostility, but the gates of hell will not prevail. And so as we consider Herod, well, we're not unsettled by hostility. We know it will come. And as we consider Herod, we're not, well, we're not seduced by unbelief because we've seen it exposed. We really have seen it laid bare, haven't we? There are a number on a, with us on a Sunday morning often who are investigating the Christian message. And if that's you this morning, we're really delighted that you are with us. You're really welcome. And perhaps you've been a bit taken aback by what we've been seeing this morning. Because there is a decision to make. Jesus' message is to repent, to turn to him as king and enter his kingdom. And the question is, well, now we've stared hard at Herod's unrepentance. Do we want to be in that family anymore? Do we want that kind of king? Perhaps we might object and say, well, we're nothing like Herod. I was sitting in a cafe on Friday watching people carry their trays to tables and thinking about this passage and thinking that same thought. You know, these people are surely not like Herod, are they? They're just carrying trays to tables. I mean, they have got platters, but they've just got their lunch on them. But with this passage in mind, this passage in mind, well, it seems to me the question is more, well, what would be their response at the call to repentance? What would be their response at the call to surrender to Jesus, to let Jesus be Lord over relationships, ambitions, business dealings, tax affairs, life priorities? Would they come to him and find rest and the light and easy yoke of a loving king? Or would we see efforts to silence the messenger? Hostility. Not enough evidence. That's just not 21st century thinking. I prefer to think of God as. Or perhaps the classic British dismissal, have you ever come across this one? Just simply, I'm fine, thanks. Well, in God's common grace, not all of us descend to the depths of Herod. He kindly restrains us, even in unrepentance. But as we look at the news today, well, surely the family portrait of Herod fits. People ask the question as they see 
the news headlines. How did they end up doing that? Matthew's shown us, and Herod displays it. It's the fruit of unrepentance, ripe and full. And so the question is, well, why persist in staying in Herod's family when you could follow the Lord Jesus? Please return over the coming weeks. We're going to see the Lord Jesus held up in all his splendor. And for us as a church family, well, Matthew wants us to see unbelief for what it really is so that we do recoil at it and that we watch that we don't go down the slippery slope of stubborn unrepentance ourselves. Having come under the good rule of King Jesus, the normal Christian life is marked by ongoing repentance. And it's in the context of the safety of dependence on Jesus, our Savior, our Redeemer, we've been thinking about this morning, who brings forgiveness. There'll be battles with sin, and these are normal. They're healthy, even when they feel intense. And personally, I've found that these verses are a striking reminder to keep going in the battles, not to ignore God's word, not to ignore conscience, but to keep close to Jesus, depending on him as saviour. But it might be that for some of us, there is an area where we've just started to resist Jesus' word. Not so much the battle, but an area where we know what he says and we're refusing to listen. We won't repent. And Matthew wants us to look at Herod closely. Do we want that? And then to look at Jesus again. The goodness of our saviour, who according to his love and mercy came into this world to lift us out of the mire. And run to him as king. And there may be some this morning wrestling with wobbles or doubts about God and his goodness. Is it really worth it? Should I keep going with Jesus? And Matthew says, have another look at the world and unbelief. Is it really better? Unreasonable, unrepentant, ugly. And now look at Jesus. And as we read on over the next few weeks, we will gaze at King Jesus as he comes into a world like this. For people like us, who by nature want to kill him, and he comes with compassion, and he comes to save, and he comes to form a new family, and to shape us into the people God made us to be. So there will be hostility as the kingdom comes. Don't be unsettled by it. And don't be seduced by it. See it for what it is, and then look again at Jesus and be strengthened. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your King, the Lord Jesus. Thank you that even amidst hostility, he is gathering his church. And as we consider this sobering portrait of unbelief, of unrepentance. Well, please would you strengthen our faith in him that we might live as his people and hold fast to him. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.